Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. We are excited to be back, and we're going to kick off with a little thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. So a huge thank you shout out to Peter Allen and Kari. And before we jump in, um, Jillian's very adorable dog was playing with a toy directly behind her microphone. I think we can all forgive sweet baby Hamilton. Jill, you should post a picture of him so everybody forgives him. And on with the show. This week, we will be discussing episode 13.1, which is, I checked, 13.1, despite it being labeled as 13.10 for those of you who watch on Amazon. What? Yes. I have DVDs, so that is very bizarre. It's super bizarre. I just wanted to point that out for anyone doing a search. Um, This week's episode was written by Ian Stokes. We have done a writer's appreciation on him already. He wrote an episode in season one titled Breakdown, which, if you recall, is the one that introduced all the regents in the diner, and his most recent credit is on Luke Cage. Excellent, and I am glad that you made that connection for me, Jill, because this episode is just chock full of SF pop culture references, And I think Breakdown was too. And I know Jack Kenny did a lot of the kind of reworking of like this trope of the regions and making it more modern. Um, But shout out to Ian Stokes because I tried to catch as many of the references as I could, but there are probably even more and they are all very, very delightful. Yes. And now for this week's summary. A tech specialist from Eureka comes to help Claudia install a new computer system in the warehouse. The installation goes awry, and the warehouse starts attacking the agents. So Pete and Micah must recruit the help of a former warehouse agent to save the day. Oh my gosh, what an episode. Um, If you were watching at the time, and Eureka was really big at this time, uh, having this crossover is so much fun, and we love Fargo as a character, um, it's really funny to to watch this in succession without also being in the middle of a Eureka rewatch. So I will have to do that sometime and have a good, good nerd out about it. And if I am correct, at about the time this gets posted, our patrons should check our Patreon page for a special bonus episode in conjunction with this one. Um, I have been hounding Jillian to... Um, to do the Eureka one with me just as a a Patreon bonus, not with artifact experts or anything, um, but just like to really acknowledge the the work that they put into this crossover, because I think it was successful in ways that a less thought out crossover could not have possibly been like they really made it work. I think that's fair. All right, let's launch into the episode. So we start Act 1 at Lena's B&B, where Claudia and Todd are making out. I wrote it that way, so that's how I said it. (laughs) Um, That's how I picture it. Yes. And Claudia says, my lips can't focus. I'm too excited. Todd agrees, but about kissing. Turns out Claudia's not talking about kissing. She's talking about how excited she is for the computer upgrade, which... Todd tries to be on board with, but it's hard to get excited about new computers at an IRS warehouse that you don't work at. (laughs) 
she says, oh, I forget you're not a computer guy. And he says, yeah, I can get new ringtones for my cell phone, which is such a funny, like, callback, not to 2009, but, like, like in 2009, you could buy them on iTunes, but, like, five years prior, you had to use those janky websites and, like, have them text it to you. I feel like that's what he's talking about, but I could be wrong. I I actually don't think you could buy them on iTunes yet. I think that was... No? No, I think, like, you could use your songs, but I don't think okay. you could buy them separately. Um, yeah, we're old. But then she says, <laughs> you're cute for a Luddite. Aww. Which is adorable. Like, I like that he's not like, yeah, this is so interesting. He's like, no, I can, I can try. Like, he's trying. He's just, it's an IRS warehouse that he doesn't work at, <laughs> as far as he knows. And, yeah, I think you're right that we see him being a good boyfriend or romantic interest, whatever he is, in this episode. Um unrelated we see him without his glasses on in uh warehouse 13 this is the first time i think that we're really kind of seeing those angular features that give a, a kind of window into his future modeling career yes um, so i was kind of cracking up about those modeling pics we talked about last time and how so you good. can kind of see that a little bit now he might be an amazing clark kent because with the, with the glasses you're like yeah okay and then without the glasses, it's, like, the only reaction I've ever had to, wow, you are a different person. I know. It's, like, you know, the bad trope of, like, the the girl gets a makeover, and when they take off the nerdy girl's glasses, she's hot. And it's, like, no, she was obviously hot the whole time. It's, like, no, he genuinely looks like a different character yeah. based on the way they dress him. I'm yes. not saying people with glasses can't be hot. I wear glasses. So does Jill. So does my partner. We're all hot. The end. <laughs> I like want that on every shirt. We're all hot at the end. Okay. <laughs> um so Claudia notices the time and says she has to go meet the guy from Global Dynamics, which is our first cue that this will be a Eureka crossover. Uh because he will be helping her install the new system. She asks Todd if they're still on for lunch, which will consist of crustless PB and J's. Doritos and Twinkies because they are children. They quite <laughs> are children. I mean, no shame at all if that is something you do, but like to pre plan that as a meal is hilarious to me. It reminds me of college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much ice cream. Um, so she rushes out, Todd looks disappointed, and from there we go to the warehouse. Yes, and I'm so glad I got this one because I said the warehouse where Artie is artying. <laughs> yes. It's like, grumble, grumble, you're messing with my systems. And Douglas Fargo from Eureka pops out from behind some dangly wires. And we get our quirky music. We, as the audience, are like, oh my gosh, it's Fargo. Um, and Artie, just to, you know, hit home that this is not Eureka, says this is not Eureka. Uh, Fargo says that the warehouse's guts are rotted, so they have to do this upgrade. But Artie, being a Luddite and being a, a sort of averse to change fellow, is being himself 
Um, and they're arguing about the upgrade. Yes, and the only specific line of dialogue that I noted in this exchange was the one that actually made me laugh out loud. He introduces himself as Douglas Fargo, then says everyone calls him Fargo, so from here on out, I will call him Fargo for ease. Fargo says, I can't upgrade with you constantly interrupting me, to which Artie replies, adapt. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because Artie is is not going to change. Um, and also, you know, the, the character of Fargo is this, like, young genius guy, and I think that's gonna be the thread throughout the episode that's, like, Claudia is a young genius, Fargo is a young genius, um, they're both real techie, you know, and that brings them together in a lot of ways. Yes. Pete and Micah sit nearby, uh, at that little table in the office, observing the argument between Artie and Fargo, and Pete and Micah have the best wordless communication. She cocks her head toward Artie and Fargo, and then Pete shakes his head, and then Micah raises a fist in a silent challenge, and they immediately play rock, paper, scissors, which is so good. It is so good, and then when, um... Micah wins and Pete loses. <laughs> Micah does this really cute celebration. And, and her adorable smile. Yes, her face. Um, one of our Twitter friends just posted a gif of, of Micah's cute face from one of the recent episodes um, when she's like laughing at Pete and they're doing their banter thing. And like, this is that face. It's the little scrunched up nose smile face that like she's genuinely happy and she genuinely has her place. And like, this is her family. I love it. I love it so much. And I love that I don't want to say it's a goofy smile, but it's just such a pure smile. And yeah, the thing that I love about it is that she's got her guard up always, all the time. And she very much cares about how people see her. And whenever she does that smile, you can tell she's not thinking about how people see her. And we talked about it recently with like women in male dominated workplaces where she has to, and I bet historically in her previous law enforcement jobs has really had to put on that brave, uh, you know, unemotional face. Well, she absolutely has to. In a few seasons, we'll get an episode specifically where that's addressed. And and the thing is, though, that Pete respects her so much as a partner that she can be herself and not feel that that's going to jeopardize his respect for her prowess at her job. That's yeah. the big thing to me. Yes, exactly. And also, like, when I say she cares what people think about her, I do mean because she has to. I don't think she's particularly vain in any way. No. Um, but... When Pete loses the game of rock, paper, scissors, he realizes that it is now his turn to go break up the fight between Artie and whatever object of his ire is currently (laughs) happening. So he goes and he sort of leads Artie away and starts calming him down. And I don't know if you caught what Artie muttered as Pete was leading him away, but I did. The exact sentences were, he's a global dynamics geek, he's soulless, he's made up of binary numbers, and then I'll tear his heart out. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because it, it really highlights the fact that in his brain he's like, Claudia is the exception, everybody else can burn in fire. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Fargo gets to go back to work in peace. 
And he starts shining a light laser thing into this deep um, crevice. I called it like a wiry pit. A wiry pit is good. That is what it is. It's like, there's computers under the floor. And we're like, yep, sure. Um, And just as he's going to look at that stuff, he drops his light. And when he's trying to figure out what to do about it, Claudia comes in the door and says hello. And she is so cool. And I I really like it's this way in both 13.1 and the Eureka app, which is called Crossing Over, where like Claudia walks in and the confidence that she exudes is like really much a part of the way that I think, especially through the lens of like this character is meeting Claudia for the first time. Like she just comes across so capable and confident and cool that she walks in is like, oh, like, I see you've dropped something. I do that all the time. And she gets out an artifact, which is a ring. And within just seconds of entering the room is immediately solving Fargo's problem. She's like, hold on to me, will you? And uh, she goes kind of fishing into the wiry pit. He kind of puts his hands on her hips to hold her from falling in. And we see like a slight like, oh, this is kind of awkward. I'm touching this woman I just met. Yeah, and, like, I think that it wasn't sexual tension, but it was, like, a degree of appropriateness. How do I navigate this without being creepy? Which I appreciated, too. She is reaching in, and this is what I actually identified, correctly or not, as a great uh, X-Files deal, because Eugene Toomes is one of the most iconic uh, baddies from X-Files, who has the ability to stretch out his arm and fingers like really long and creepy like. And when she starts reaching into this pit and her arm gets glowy and extended, it's not exactly the same visual effect, but it's very much a similar like nod to these uh, iconic images from the X-Files. So I thought that that was probably on purpose because they could have solved this problem in any number of ways, and yet they chose that specific way. And what I found interesting was when she does retrieve very easily his little light thingy that he dropped, he pulls her up and he says, wow, what makes it glow, a phosphorus compound? And she says, no, it was Ben Franklin's and it amplifies human energy. And immediately, like, alleviated my anxiety about what would happen next after using this artifact. I don't know if anyone here has ever looked into the Radium Girls. I'm not going to get into it on this podcast, but the second she put it on, I was like, Claudia, what is the side effect going to be this time, you know? So I was glad that they resolved that, and it was a cool, fun artifact and not a scary thing we were going to have to worry about for the whole episode. And I also really like the contrast of Fargo's world and Claudia's world, because this is what I was saying about, like, Eureka is literally a show about science and technology inventor geniuses. That's the whole concept that there is always a techno uh, or techno babbly description and explanation of what's occurring. And in Warehouse, we don't have that. Like we have the endless wonder, the mystery, the magic of like, I think it's connected the idea of energy transfer and like we get psychology in this particular episode. Like they, they're not removed from science, 
but it's a different sort of genre in terms of how the artifacts work. Yeah, I was just going to say it all goes back to 103 Magnetism and our discussions of the way science in the Victorian era was used to discuss emotions and to figure out how and to what degree these things are related. Yes, and that ties in again because, like I've always said, and uh, as my life has come to prove, uh, this is a show about really, really about the 19th century in that it's like a sort of steampunk show and a lot of its basic premises are founded on like, you know, this way of thinking about technology. So even when there is an an artifact that's different or from a different age, like there's this continued thread of 19th century stuff always that made me go be a 19th centuryist. Mm, I love it. And uh, their conversation... Fargo's and Claudia's, that is, goes a little further and we get some fun details that Mrs. Frederick, who Fargo identifies as the scary lady with the beehive, is the one, (laughs) I know, is the one who recruited him to come help. Uh, And before that time, he thought the warehouse was just an internet rumor. That's very fun. And I like, because I think realistically, assuming that people like Fargo and Claudia exist in the world. There are going to be internet rumors about this secret government warehouse. Uh, So Fargo clearly wants to know more, but Claudia says, no, you only have this level of clearance. You cannot get a tour of the artifacts. Uh, But spoiler, he's going to get to see some artifacts. (laughs) So as they're changing subjects, Claudia spots some cool technology and it's like, ooh, is that what I think it is? And they both catch each other's eye and geek out really hard about this little kind of microchip thing that they're going to install. And it's, I think, specifically lined up to show the contrast between Claudia wanting to tell Todd how excited she is and not, like, not that he's not willing to listen, but he can't fully understand versus Fargo is, like, super able to geek out with her yes uh the exact thing that is being referenced is he picks up a little chip and says it's going to replace everything that's in that wiry pit and she Hmm. gets very excited and says oh my gosh is it gasp we'll save that for the show notes because i'm just going to provide links that can explain this way better than i ever can he says it is a global dynamics invention and she is very impressed Yes, and he also mentions, it's like, global dynamics, where I work. Well, actually, I'm in charge. And so all of this ties into the long story arc of Eureka, which was in season four at this time. And so uh, Fargo, who used to be a low-level guy, becomes the actual head of the company throughout that arc. And so he is still kind of awkward about being... A low-level guy but he's like oh actually I'm in charge of that and like actually I invented some stuff and his humility but also his genius is part of what's really adorable about this character and it's I think it's hard to really appreciate him and love him the way that a, a big-time Eureka fan would without having seen all of those episodes 
But hopefully you get a sense if you have not seen Eureka, which I'm not assuming all of our listeners have, but the, the, this is a beloved person who we think is a good guy and he's smart and he's dorky and, and funny. Well, actually, Miranda, I can say at least on my end with certainty that I immediately loved Fargo because, and I'm so sorry, listeners, I didn't really watch Eureka. No, that's okay. Um, and it wasn't anything against it. At this time, I was in the process of transferring schools, and then my senior year of high school before that was crazy. So really, Warehouse 13 was my big show on the Sci-Fi Channel. So I this actually really did get me excited, and after this, I watched a few episodes, and I enjoyed it. So I think that they did a good job with the choice of character to send over in our little warehouse world. Yes. He takes the opportunity to point out these cool little things, uh, these little metal spider-looking things that are called Maras. Um, So it's an automaton that's for maintenance reasons. And he's like, oh yeah, I invented those, but already vetoed them. (laughs) And Claudia gets such a good joke, which is, oh, he would have vetoed fire if he was born a few years earlier. It's so good. I wrote it down too. I had such a good time. And from there, we go to the warehouse office, where now Claudia and Fargo are at a computer. Artie hovers over them, and Pete and Micah stand at a more respectful distance. Um, Fargo starts the upgrade process, and all the lights go out. But then they don't come back on, which alarms him. Yes. Artie immediately asks what Fargo did. (laughs) <laughs> he says the new OS should have, the new operating system, should have come right on. I love that Artie is so pissed at Fargo. We had this issue in 203 where we felt like he dismissed Claudia, at least in part, because she was a young woman. It's nice to see that he's equally, if not more, distrustful of Fargo. Yeah, he's just uh, grumpy pants, and that's his way. Um, And I also wanted to ask you, Jill, so there's this awkward moment where Fargo goes, bring in the new, and nothing happens. And then Pete goes, anybody going to ask me to dance? And, like, it's funny because Pete's adorable, but is that a reference to something? I'm sure it's a reference to something, but I could not place it. Yeah. And then the OS should have come right on, but instead a scary parking meter Cylon pops up. That's what I call it. That's amazing. And it's Pete who says, like... He says, I hope that means we can't park here. Yes. And especially because, so this is our sort of pop culture visual uh, homage, the the red light going back and forth like an eye is very much 2005 Battlestar Galactica. Like, I mean, we could also say Eye of Sauron, but it's definitely it's definitely a science fiction thing. Yeah, and it's definitely, we understand that motion and we recognize it as an eye because of Cylons. Yes, exactly. And so they never call it a Cylon because that might have been too on the nose, but I will now call them parking meter Cylons because they're amazing. Yes. Then suddenly more parking meter Cylons pop up throughout the warehouse And a voice on the PA system that we do not recognize says, Catastrophic failure detected. Which is 
pretty much Artie's worst nightmare. <laughs> um, and you don't need to know what that means to know what it means. Yes, and from there, the device closest to all the agents begins scanning them with its red light and pulls up their ID cards. And on that ominous note, we go to the opening credits. Do-do-do. Do-do-do. <laughs> oh, I missed that note bad. That's okay. No, it's okay. Um, and I think that was a very tight opening act. Everything pushed the story forward, gave us a good laugh, didn't linger. I thought it was very good. I really was, like, in for this episode. Once, like, we got to that point, I was like, I'm in. So when we return from the theme song, uh, the team thinks, rightly that the parking meters are watching them and pete is hilariously shaking his fist and we see through the point of view of the cylon eye that like it's looking at pete as he's like and it's pretty funny yes um at this point micah does call them eyes so for my purposes i'll be referring to them as eyes from now on just for clarity um arty turns (laughs) to fargo and says this is all your fault bismarck which Bismarck is very far away, though. Fargo is a city in North Dakota, and so is Bismarck. (laughs) I love this because when I studied linguistics, we talked about, like, verbal classification errors, and there are certain, like, learning disabilities that will make, like, a small child calls his pinky a purpley because his visual, uh, his way of categorizing that is not through finger or hand, it's through color because it's called pink, Anyway, North Dakota, it's like Artie's brain is classifying Fargo not as a person, but as some (laughs) city in North Dakota. I love it. Um, So Fargo does correct him and say, no, Fargo, and then explains (laughs) that there was a failsafe that activated when he tried to install the update, and now they're locked out completely. Fargo's very annoyed at Artie for not mentioning there was a failsafe, and Artie feels that Fargo should have known about the failsafe because tech people should know all tech things that's a a very older person kind of view they fight about the failsafe until Artie is like wait i recognize the voice that's hugo miller who was the original designer of the warehouse uh, computer technology and so he rushes everybody to the computer lab which is hilarious because I don't think any of the agents, like Claudia, nobody knows there's a computer lab because he says like, it's been shut down for more than 35 years because obviously computers are so much smaller now that it was from a very specific era that you would need a lab for computers. Um, So they go in there, it's very science fiction-y, shiny, silver, white, clean, echoey. And there is also, though, evidence of Hugo Miller. Uh, Board games, a bottle of pop, like, Artie starts talking about Hugo and was like, he used to work down here and he was this sort of playful, uh, prankster sort of person. Specifically a prankster with regards to soda, but put a pin in that, we'll come back to it later. Yes. Artie says to spread out, don't touch anything, but look for an off switch, which you're dealing with Pete. You should have sent a chaperone. It's all insane. <laughs> Claudia asks who Hugo Miller was, and Artie says he was a brilliant man, more than a little devious, and may have secretly engineered the Microsoft-Apple feud. 
So from there, Pete sees the light switch, and of course he flips it, and luckily nothing dire happens. <laughs> but, like, you you could not have thought, don't touch anything but look for a switch was going to work on Pete. Um, Artie says Hugo spent years down here in the computer lab making the warehouse into a workable platform, and that's when Pete and Artie find a lot of old board games, and Pete finds the can of soda. Um... Artie says to put it down because Hugo liked to play practical jokes and leave exploding cans of pop everywhere. How many times did that happen for it to be a thing Hugo liked to do? That just makes me laugh. Then Micah asks what happened to Hugo, and Artie unconvincingly says that he retired. The exchange is so obvious that we can gauge Micah's pretty sure something bad happened, and Artie very immediately confirms that by trying to deny it. But interestingly, I don't think Artie knows exactly what happened, and I'll get to why later. But I do think he feels some degree of shame for not looking into it further. This is someone who we knew pretty well, and he just didn't really care to look into what became of this person. And that's very indicative of the personality that already had before P and Micah and Claudia came into his life. From there, Claudia says, hello, Blinky, and has discovered a blinking light. It seems to be nearby a dot matrix printer, which is my favorite obsolete technology. Uh, just those printers with those big sheets of paper that you have to tear the rippy things from. Um, and so... They put together that they have found the failsafe, and it is uploading a massive amount of data from the mainframe. And this is when Artie explains that the computer systems are all linked together. So again, that amazing Battlestar Galactica episode with the, like, oh my gosh. Anyway, uh, you yeah. know the one. Yeah. Um, and if you don't know the one... It is the 2005 episode, season two, number nine, Flight of the Phoenix. It's also tied in in the warehouse to things like temperature and the goo neutralizer, which is going to come in later that uh, this computer can control everything, which is a basic early question of science fiction of like, what if the robots take over? And... Micah starts to see that they're all in over their heads and suggests bringing Hugo to the warehouse. Artie says, I told you he's retired. And Pete makes a throat-cutting gesture. And Artie says, he's alive. Don't be dramatic. There are rumors of a nervous breakdown, which is an obsolete term, but I feel like given Artie's age, he's forgiven. That was probably what it was called back in the day. So in response to the rumors of a nervous breakdown... Pete jokes that sitting in a windowless room playing Monopoly with Hal for 10 years, what could go wrong? And I think that's a great 2001 uh, joke because in the episode, like I said, the idea of a computer taking over and maybe killing people is very 2001 A Space Odyssey. So then he divulges that Hugo is in a place called Hutchinson's, which is in Featherhead two hours away. And then that leads us to the actual location where Hugo Miller has been taken. So we jump to an establishing shot of a sanitarium there. And basically the story moves super quick. Pete and Micah are going to go get Hugo Miller, 
Because even if he is mentally ill, they are hoping that they can explore that and see if he could help. Um, so I just want to pause before we go into the story for a brief acknowledgement of sanitariums and this fictional city that might be any number of real cities in South Dakota. So the history of the sanitarium in the U.S. is often linked to really difficult uh, histories of the Native American um, boarding school movement. So I looked up real sanitariums in South Dakota, and there is indeed a famous one there, and it's called the Sioux San Hospital, and it was established in 1898 as a Native American boarding school that tore families apart and forced children of a ton of Native American tribes, including Cheyenne, Shoshone, Crow, and numerous others, to assimilate and you know, give up their native cultures to become more European. So after a few decades, it was transformed into a tuberculosis sanatorium. So this is where I was thinking like, oh, I wonder if this sanitarium used to be for TB or these other kind of Victorian illnesses. Um, and it was, but it was a sanitarium for Native Americans with TB. So unlike the sanitariums for white people, uh, which would treat you, these hospitals were places where Native Americans were locked up and abused and just sent to die. So they were like, we need to get you out of the main cultural social sphere to not infect anyone. This is a real hospital in South Dakota where they would likely be, um, was transformed into a clinic for low-income Native Americans in the 1960s, which is slightly better, but again, uh, because of vast economic disparity is not going to be able to provide the same treatment that white Americans would have. So this sanitarium still exists. And in 2016, Congress set aside money to renovate the hospital and continue using it. So if you are interested in the kind of history of hospitals, especially again, in lands where uh, the native population was very historically displaced like both of the Dakotas like they are named for indigenous tribes but those lands were taken from those people so um if you want to know more about the topic I'm not an expert on it but there is a Lakota woman named Madonna Swan who uh, was held in the sanitarium and told her story to various interviewers who have collected her words and published them. If you want to look up more about the topic, I just thought it would be good to acknowledge it and to be like, yeah, this show is set in South Dakota and the colonialism there is very real. This subject is also addressed in the novel Tracks and the book series of which it is a part. We recommended that book in episode 105 Elements, so I'll provide the information to that once more in the show notes. I think it's so important. It is. Just like they, I don't think they knew it, but South Dakota is a real place. I believe that they knew it, and I, we did have that note the first time Featherhead came up that it was, it felt very problematic as a term just to see without context. But to then tie in the fact that there's a sanitarium in that area, it shows a, a deeper understanding and a more thoughtful connection. Yeah. And then I think the interesting question is that when we arrive, it's a very nice facility. And Hugo Miller is, I mean, he's clearly been well taken care of. And I think 
we could even go so far as to say, well, compared to a indigenous person who may have been housed there in the past, this sweet elderly white man has the opportunity to be well cared for in a way that other people historically were not. Um, and it's now very beautiful, old school, you know, place. So, yes, it does show a bit of a problematic understanding of mental health, too, when they play the scary music when they arrive. But Pete is there to be super kind and he sees the lovely grounds and he says, yeah, I think I could retire here with air quotes. Um, yeah. Pete then wonders if they give sponge baths. Gross. Don't sexualize sponge baths. Um, Micah muses that every former warehouse agent they've ever known is crazy, evil, or dead. And then Pete says, or all three. Which is not great. And as she's saying that, I just want to note she's doing her neck thing. Ah, she is! And off that, the nurse of the facility, or one of them, I assume there's more than one, uh, lets Pete and Micah into a very large, nice, well-appointed room uh, where Hugo is staying, and Hugo is drawing as they enter. Yeah, and he is just a sweet old man talking I in the way that a person who has some sort of dementia or disconnection might. But we have no reason, and I think this is beautifully done, we have no reason to be afraid of this man. He is a, a cute, sweet, older guy who just has whatever issue he has and is drawing a picture in a well-lit, happy room. So now that we're here, it's time for a very bittersweet Actor's Spotlight. The actor who plays Hugo Miller in this and other Warehouse 13 episodes is the amazing, incomparable René Aubergenois. And he passed away just a few weeks before we recorded this episode, so we are deeply saddened by his loss. He was such a phenomenal actor and person in this world. He is a legendary American actor, voice artist, and director. You may have seen him in anything from the 1970 film M.A.S.H. to his voice work in Johnny Quest, The Smurfs, Rugrats, The Little Mermaid, Justice League, Avatar The Last Airbender, and Ben 10. You may know some of his popular roles. He was Mr. Rich in Richie Rich, Clayton in the sitcom Benson, Judge Keeler in Judging Amy, Paul Lewiston in Boston Legal, and more recently, Walter in Madam Secretary. Of course, fans of the science fiction genre will also recognize our beloved changeling, Constable Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. When I was researching him for this spotlight, I learned so much from his New York Times obituary, including that he was a stage actor who played a gay fashion designer in the Broadway musical Coco, which is about Coco Chanel, and he starred alongside Katharine Hepburn. He even earned a Tony Award for his performance. So he's been blowing minds and being a part of our community for ages. His obituary also described him as a, quote, sought-after character actor who often played, quote, scene-stealing characters who injected comic relief or snark. So I think that is a great description. I highly recommend reading uh, the rest of his obituary and celebrating his life. 
He will be greatly missed, and we just dote on him in this episode because of the wonderful job he did playing this character. And I loved, I loved his line too, I have to say, because it read like a perfect Mad Lib. <laughs> the exact thing he says was, I know who you are, you're President Ulysses S. Grant and the snowman. You've come because it's Arbor Day and there aren't enough zippers to go around. Like, <laughs> it's just delightful. Like, it's clearly not of a sound mind, but you're not laughing at him because he's going through something you're laughing at the actual construction of the sentence yes and so then uh pete and micah mention the fail safe and they they share that exact sentence of the catastrophic failure and hugo does kind of perk up and recognize what they're discussing and then as he continues to do his uh charming cute thing he says that they need the code but he must be paid in bicycles. And he hands them what you think is gonna be like he wrote down the code, but it's a drawing of a cat. <laughs> and Pete, who has previously agreed to the terms of the aforementioned <laughs> bicycle, says, I'm not paying a bicycle for this. Which again, like what we really see with Pete in this episode is that he's not doing it in a harmful way in the way that like leaning into someone's delusions can sometimes harm them. He's leaning in to meet Hugo at his level and talk to him like a real kind, sweet human person who just has a different level of understanding. And so when Pete's like, we can arrange that, like if you need to be paid in bicycles, like that's a very reasonable demand. Like yeah. he doesn't he doesn't patronize or scoff at this man with again dementia or something like we don't yet know it's an artifact. So we're kind of thinking that maybe it's just something more normal cuz he is a little older and and that can happen. Exactly. And like the things he's asking for aren't outlandish and you know, you could make fun of him, but that's not going to get you anywhere and that's not going to help him. And I think Pete recognizes that. He we talked before when we first met uh, Dr. Hernandez, the vet. Pete really does want to put others first. And that need on his part doesn't diminish just because you're not a hot woman who he's interested in. And so they continue to discuss the issue and when they mention warehouse 13 again hugo miller kind of perks up and he says uh oh can we get ice cream they like look at each other and they're like yeah yeah we can get ice cream like again if this if this gentleman just needs some bicycles and some ice cream like they're working with him and treating him like they would, you know, they would treat anyone else who's like, yeah, I'll exchange this information for that payment. And I do want to say he does give interesting information when they mention the warehouse. He says Warehouse 13, clearly remembering that that is a place he used to be. And then he says three words in relation to Warehouse 13, only one of which makes sense to us. He says, the spinning and the dancing and the boxes. Now we get the boxes, but I don't think we think of the warehouse as a particularly dancey place. No, we don't. <laughs> so that is interesting and something to keep in mind. 
Yes, and I think that's the great thing about re-watching this show, is it, this episode is so tightly written that you're like, it was there all along! But if you're watching it the first time, you're like, yeah, he's just saying words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so Pete and Micah think that they've got this in the bag. They'll just lead him to the car. But actually, he grabs their Teslas and electrocutes them and sort of skips away. He literally skips away. <laughs> he's so cute. <laughs> I think he zaps them to, to get out of the sanitarium. But we know that he knows they won't die. He's not trying to hurt them. Like, they quickly bounce back to life and are able to come after him. But he literally does, like, a little heel kick. And it's, or heel, what is it? Heel click? Yeah, heel click. It's cute. So from there, we go back to the warehouse office where Claudia and Fargo bring all the files they can find on Hugo Miller, which is how we know Artie didn't really know the full extent of what happened to Hugo. Claudia is the one who informs him while reading from a file that it says the regents found Hugo collapsed in an aisle and cited it as mental exhaustion. Yes, and so Claudia is like, oh, well, we should investigate this aisle and this report, but before they can actually do that, Fargo points out that the computer is about to finish this update. This <laughs> command screen has been doing something. So I was going to say, Artie's response to that is, please don't blow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's counting down. And they're like, what's, what's it going to be? Please don't blow up. And then just like the lights come back on. And Fargo's like, oh, that wasn't so bad, which, you know, famous last words. Um, they are still locked out of the computer. And then, bum ba da dum a holographic artificial intelligence appears and it is Hugo one who is an actual image of a younger Hugo Miller who has arrived to review the files and scan the warehouse with his eyes. Already said they were just installing a new system. There was no catastrophic failure and Hugo one says, I'll be the judge of that. And then says that he will be back later because he has to go scan and read decades of personnel files, which I think is kind of important. Back at the hospital, Pete and Micah are recognizing what Jillian has previously brought up, which is that he kept talking about spinning and dancing, like that must have meant something. And then Micah's like, wait a second, like I was paying attention in the car. I think I know where Hugo is. And so they quickly leave the sanitarium. So they arrive at a carousel and Pete is like standing on the carousel. He gets off and they have indeed found Hugo Miller. I imagine it's a very near to, you know, walking distance to the uh, grounds of the facility. And he looks kind of down and Hugo Miller says it worked last time. And knowing what the artifact is and how it ends, like, I actually think this is, you know, a very intelligent man who is accessing so close, like he's so close to, it's like when a word is on the tip of your tongue, he's like, I think I know how to fix my brain, but he can't. Your brain is working, it's just connecting the wrong information. Yes. And this is when Pete does what I think is so genuine. He says, well, I'm going to put these, I'm going to give you these bright, shiny bracelets. Like, let's put these on. And 
They do have to do that because he's at them and he's not, he's not trying to hurt anyone, but they don't want him to accidentally hurt anybody. And they continue to emphasize that they, they still really need his help. And I think all of this is done so nicely and especially Eddie's sincerity and the kindness of his voice when he delivers that, it feels really, really real. It doesn't sound like he's mocking him. That leads us back to the warehouse where another Eureka joke, Claudia is like, why do you think that Hugo modeled this AI after himself? And Fargo's like, uh, you know, inventors do that sometimes. Definitely not me. But Fargo has done this in Eureka. And I think the specific reference that's really funny is that Fargo built a smart house, um, which he named Sarah, after Sarah Michelle Geller. And uh, that's that's text. It's in the show. And then he uh, Fargo is the voice of the smart house, which is essentially the 2005 imagining of A-L-E-X-A, whose name I can't say because she'll activate. And <laughs> But the, the point of the joke is that Fargo is creating this feminine house named after Sarah Michelle Gellar, but he did all the voice commands. So when the house talks to them, it's, it's clearly Fargo's voice with like a slightly more effeminate lilt because he's like trying to like, he's trying to make it a female entity, but yet it's just <laughs> him. And I, I think a lot of fans of Eureka think that the house as a character is very fun and funny and like also an extension of Fargo, which links to this exact episode. That's awesome. Um... Fargo is very impressed with this and says that when Hugo's system was invented, AI was just science fiction, to which Artie retorts, if something seems impossible, that usually means there's an artifact involved. Which, yes. which is so funny because Eureka being a very science-based show, there's that old adage, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, which is the exact opposite of what Artie just said. Like, no, sometimes it's just magic, man. <laughs> and I love that. And I also love that as just a sort of like, sort of part-time pagan, as I call myself. Like, you know, there's just magic in the world. And I yeah. don't mean, I don't mean like wizard magic. I just mean like, like life is complicated and beautiful. And like, Artie's framework, I think, is is what makes the warehouse so compelling to me. I 100% agree. Um, and at that point, Hugo arrives and says he has finished his scan, and Claudia says she hopes that means it's all cool and he'll go away now. That's not what it means, Claudia. He <laughs> recites some uh, information he learned upon reading their files, which is that Claudia's file shows nine separate incident reports, which she's actually okay with. She thought it would be more. Um, and Fargo's file from Eureka shows that he inappropriately pushed a button 38 times, which seems like it could have been read from Pete's file, but I don't know what happened there. <laughs> and then Hugo One says that Artie's unconventional management skills are subpar, which is harsh, but given the trajectory of season one, I can see how he reached that conclusion. But hey, Artie's working on it. He's doing his best. Yes. Hugo One says that the source of the recent catastrophic event is the agents who work there. And then locks them all into the warehouse. Oh, man. And it just says, I have completed my analysis. 
before the outro and we're like well that's that then yes the uh we had a cool new outro card this time uh we saw several vault doors locking which i thought tied in very well thematically so after the commercial break we see todd who brought claudia her lunch and he says your Doritos are getting cold. Oh, so cute. Again, it's just, it's, it's very adorable. And this is what I've said, like, as a boyfriend for Claudia, like, he's a sweet, genuine, nice guy on the same sort of level as her as a, you know, 19-year-old. Um, she quickly gets awkward and tells, like, she tells Fargo she's on the phone with nobody. And then... I mean, I get it, like... I don't think she meant anything negative by it. I think she was just like, this. Is, he's nobody to you. It doesn't matter for what's happening here. But it does create the kind of awkward moment that always makes me feel, what do they call it, vicarious embarrassment. Yeah. Like, I feel like, oh, Claudia, just say that's my boyfriend. Like, just say it. Um, but again, I think that the topic of the episode is like, she's not in a serious committed relationship with Todd. She's just started dating him. And, and she's she just likes- started dating period, like in her life. Yes. It's all new to her. And Artie doesn't have time to be <laughs> kind. So the signal starts to go out on Claudia's phone call and Hugo One appears to reveal that external communications are forbidden unless for warehouse business. And it sort of leaves that conversation with with both Fargo and Todd in a bit of a weird place Um, and Hugo One then announces that he will be initiating the Falcon Scott protocol that's what I heard that's what I heard okay Um, Artie instantly knows what that means unlike me and seemed very upset about it but don't worry Hugo One is there to clarify that it means that the temperature will be dropping to sub-zero to protect the artifacts so Micah, meanwhile, has gotten the file that the nurses at the hospital gave her. And as they're, I believe, driving, she says that a whole section of Hugo's brain is dormant for no apparent reason. So this definitely explains his state of mind. Yes. Um, and they're thinking about this when Hugo says he needs to shed a tear, which I've never heard that saying, but... It's so gross! That's like, I feel like that's... The euphemism is way worse. You should hear the euphemism that the guy who sat next to me in high school said for pooping. It's the worst thing I've ever heard. Do you want to hear it? I have to hear it now! He said he looked at me for no reason. I was just sitting next to him. I did not know this guy. Some random guy in high school, like, looks over at me and says... I need to launch a rocket. No! I was like like 15. I was literally a freshman in high school. I was like, who are you? Like, why are you telling me that? Um, Anyway, they they know that he has to take a bathroom break. And so they prepare to pull over at a gas station. Yes. And from there, we cut to the warehouse stacks. Artie reveals that they have one hour before the cold becomes life-threatening. Great! Super! Um, And then they find what might be my favorite artifact in the show so far. Uh, Artie leads them to a box where he takes out these old stones and starts talking to them. And they're like, we don't understand 
what is happening with your words. Then he hands them each pieces of the stone brick thing and reveals that they're pieces of the Tower of Babel and it makes everything they say sound like gibberish to everyone who's not holding one of the stones and it will allow them to talk undetected without Hugo One interfering. That is so cool. And you know what's also super cool is that I believe, and I'm not an audio engineer, but they've made, they've reversed the audio on all the lines. Well, and in the show notes, I will link Missy Elliott's Work It, which is also a wonderful work in which words are said backwards. So, this, as Artie said, is no usual AI. When Hugo sees that they're outsmarting him with these babble stones, he looks around um, his surroundings. And this is interesting because one of Fargo's lines is like, well, AIs can adapt, like this technology should learn. And that is what the technology is doing, but not to their advantage. So Hugo one sees those Mara spider things and is like, hmm. And then before we see the results, we cut back to the gas station. Yes, and that gas station, for some reason, has ice cream. Is that a thing? Micah notices Pete and Hugo emerging from the bathroom area and says, oh, you took off Hugo's cuffs, to which Pete says he likes to sit, and that's not in my job description, which, you know, (laughs) fair, Pete, fair. Fair. There was a really great moment and some really great acting choices where Hugo demands ice cream and Pete says, well, not now. And Hugo just stomps his feet and makes like an angry child face. And it was so endearing. It's so good. They're about to get on their way. Micah asks Pete to get her some Twizzlers. She's going to call Artie while they get, you know, their sneaky snacks, as my old roommate would say. (laughs) First of all, the gas station attendant with the name tag that says Leo is played by Zach Ward, who you have seen in a lot of things, not the least of which is Ah. Dollhouse. Artie still has the Babble Stones, and that means that when he's on the Farnsworth, Micah can't understand him, and she has no idea. She's like, I think the Farnsworth isn't working, like, what's going on? Slow down. Um, Artie scribbles a message on his clipboard that he's holding, and this, you know, kind of confusion leads Pete to come over. And Pete, being Pete, sees the message, and instead of reading it with his eyes, reads it out loud with his mouth, (laughs) and, you know, it says that Hugo One has taken over, they have to come back, and by reading it aloud on the Farnsworth, which Hugo One can hear... Uh, Hugo One gets alerted to what is occurring, and we then see, like, as if on cue, that the the duo, Pete, Micah, and uh, Hugo, the real Hugo, are heading out, but in front of the cashier from the gas station, the TV pops up with a display of Pete and Micah's image that they're wanted as fugitives or something like that. And before they head out... Pete does get ice cream for Hugo. Hugo spots an orange cat planter and says, Albert grows things. I miss that. Oh, uh, yes, very important. Then Hugo just happily takes his ice cream and heads out, and the gas station attendant is a little 
a little alarmed already by that behavior, and then turns to the TV as Pete and Micah are leaving. Yes, and so that's where he sees their pictures pop up, um, and even before we get the actual explanation from Micah, like, we can understand that Hugo 1 knows that what Pete and Micah are doing and is going to try to stop them. Um, and we'll see that play out in a second. But first we go back to the warehouse where Artie is sending Claudia to that aisle. It's like Allentown something. Allentown 22C. Yes, where Hugo Miller was originally found having collapsed. And he says basically like, see if there's an artifact linked with telepathy or mind control or like something that would explain why Hugo Miller or his AI, you know, why any of this might be happening. And they're like, what, what are you going to do, Artie? And he says he's going to have a chat with Hugo One. So we see Artie being like the agent in this role. He's going he's gonna to use his Luddite smarts and figure out what's going on, which is awesome. I do like these moments that we get with him confronting his past as a warehouse agent before Pete and Micah and Claudia came into his life because when we first see him he's a very very sad older man and he's alone and he's regretting a lot of his life choices and I don't know if it was McPherson who he wound up talking about in the first episode or if it's just another nameless agent who we never hear from again but when we first meet Artie he's determined to find this one agent who went missing and he's got I think a lot of regrets about how he used to handle himself um sorry to anyone who can hear my dog I think this kind of work gives him a chance to make good on the kind of man he wishes he could have been back in the day yes and with that we return to the gas station where Pete and Micah are leaving but I actually just wrote Zach Ward comes out and confronts them. <laughs> um, but yes, Leo, the cashier, has a gun and is not messing around. And they put their hands up. But again, it's kind of ping pong back and forth. We cut to Claudia looking through the artifacts. And she's reading aloud what the artifacts do. And she's like, blah, 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 makes pigeons dance. And I'm just like... <laughs> Hold on, I want the one that makes pigeons dance. I'm so, so <laughs> intrigued by it. And as they're uh, looking through these artifacts, Claudia and Fargo are talking about their relationships. Um, Claudia is just clearly struggling with that and is finding it helpful to talk to him. And as she's reaching through the shelves, she knocks something down. And luckily, Fargo jumps forward and catches it. And he says out loud, it's a zoetrope, which he used to have as a kid. So I will take that opportunity to introduce our artifact expert for the week. Dr. Amanda Schubert from the University of Chicago teaches and writes about 19th century British literary, visual, and media cultures from the rise of the novel to the invention of cinema. Her current book, Virtual Realism, Victorian Fiction as Optical Technology, explores the relationship between the realist novel and pre-cinematic optical technology in Victorian Britain. So here's Amanda's explanation of zoetropes. So a zoetrope is a popular mid-19th century optical toy that creates the illusion of uh, moving images. 
So it consists of a spinning circular drum that's interspersed with apertures. And inside the drum, you can uh, place a strip of paper that's illustrated with a sequence of forms that are kind of in progressive stages of motion. Um, so it could be uh, a man walking or a woman dancing or a dog um, jumping over a fence or something like that, but broken down into different um, stages. So when a spectator spins the zoetrope, spins the, the drum, she can look through the apertures to see all those illustrated forms as a kind of animated sequence. I feel like if you are into editing or cinematography and directing, you will be a lot more familiar specifically with what a zoetrope is. But if, like me, you went into production and screenwriting and that side of film more, you might be like, wait. Our guest expert said that a zoetrope is animated, and why do I remember this whole thing with horses on photograph? I did a bit of research, and of course, of course our expert is right, I would never doubt this, but zoetrope is a pre-film animation device. However, Edward Moybridge did the famous series called A Horse in Motion, that I believe also had another name. It was Sally Gardner and the Galloping Horse. And Edward Moybridge, I will put a lot more information about in the show notes. I was going to say, he's a questionable historical figure. He is very questionable, but his life is wild. Normally when you see these older dudes on Wikipedia, their subsection headings are things like, notable accomplishments and life works. Some of his headlines include serious accident and recuperation, then photographing the American West. Oh, that sounds lovely. Then Stanford and horse gates. Okay, a little awkward. And then murder, acquittal, and paternity. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. I'm just glad you have that in your brain, too, because I have a lot of information about Edward Moorbridge, who added a bunch of extra letters to his name to pretend he was more Anglo-Saxon. Anglo yes. Like, what a dude. Oh, my gosh. In regards to film history... He was very much about the study of how to capture motion with still photography and what it took for your brain to register motion and how many pictures would you need to take and in what sequence in order for your brain to believe that motion was occurring. So it was sort of the original stop motion video situation and he was eventually hired by Leland Stanford, who was a horseman who was interested in horse gait analysis. And also the founder of Stanford University. Fascinating. Thank you. Just so you know. I'm glad to know. And this is what people like me will remember from film school. The goal of Stanford's study that he hired Moybridge for was he wanted to see if it was actually possible to capture a horse with all four feet off the ground and whether or not at any point horses did actually have all four feet off the ground. Because a zoetrope could only approximate and guess what that would look like. But at that point in history, no one had ever photographed a horse with all four feet off the ground. Because how could you? It happened so fast. And video didn't exist. So with 
rapid pictures in succession, Moybridge was able to capture a horse with all four feet off the ground and then put those images in sequence to give us an actual photographic and then later what we understand as filmic image of a horse galloping, which is pretty cool. And that has a direct correlation to the original zoetrope, which also featured horses galloping, but only in an animated form. And this amazing thing you're talking about with the uh, the horse and the image was a bet that he ultimately won. Yep. And uh, he created a more sophisticated uh, photo uh, taker to like take those pictures, yep. which is called a zoopraxiscope. As you can see just in the name, zoopraxiscope to zoetrope, they're clearly related. Is meet the historians often describe the zoetrope as a pre-cinematic technology um, because it's a device that created moving images before the advent of cinema. Um, cinema arrives in 1895, 1896, um, and so this is a device that existed fully um, 40 years earlier um, that had the capacity to entertain people through images that moved. Um, the illustrated uh, strip inside of a zoetrope is reminiscent of a film strip, only it's illustrated. At the same time, I think it's important not to think about the zoetrope as a kind of primitive form of cinema or like almost cinema, but not quite, because it is a distinct medium. It's its own thing. It creates its own kinds of visual effects and perceptual effects. So um, cinema is projected, um, but a zoetrope is not. Countless people can watch a film at the same time, but a zoetrope is a small object that uh, one or two or maybe five people can cluster around to see the, the moving images at the same time. Um, it's also circular. Film has the capacity to be developmental or plot-driven. One thing's happens after another but the zoetrope kind of you spin it and it just keeps spinning until it wears down so you see the same sequence going over and over again um so it's definitely part of that history of cinema um but it's important to think about the ways in which it's, it's kind of not like that it's different as well so unfortunately before claudia can warn fargo who has i think you know, pushed 38 buttons when not supposed to. Uh, he is like, oh, I have one of these. And he spins it. And it makes, this is one of the, the kind of famous images that as a uh, Victorian zoetrope would show, these waltzing dancers appear. And as the, the optical illusion, you know, creates uh, their movement, Claudia is like, ah, I've got to stop him. And so she kind of goes for it, but it absorbs her attention and when she looks in, she sees Fargo's whole life flash before her eyes um, and then luckily is not so absorbed that she gets lost or anything and is able to kind of bat it away and they are both saved from serious damage. But then she looks at him and is like, was that a genie costume? <laughs> we didn't see. We had like a smash cut of images, but we didn't see that. Like, it's just some funny, uh, amazing joke in the show. And I like it. Yes. Once they've avoided possible ca catastrophe, um, Fargo is reading the uh, label and says that this is Max Wertheimer's zoetrope. 
Yeah, so it allows for mind transference. So he is one of the founders of um, Gestalt psychology in the early 20th century, and he's a pioneer in the study of visual perception, and in particular, the illusion of motion. So he's working on the optical problem that's raised by toys like the zoetrope. So when you spin a zoetrope or when you watch a film, why do you see a moving image instead of a strip of static images? What is the thing that produces that sense of um, that illusion of motion? Um, and then a second way of tracking this is through the name zoetrope, which combines the Greek roots for life and turning to signify wheel of life. So when you spin a zoetrope, you're not just making the pictures move, you're making them live, you're bringing them to life. Um, there's a discursive connection between visual animation, like a moving image, and metaphysical animation, like um, imbuing something with life or bringing it to life. Right before this moment, Claudia was kind of questioning her relationship with Todd and how it would be nice to just have someone you can share things with. But also she's seeing that it's just part of being an adult and and meeting other adults is that you all have your baggage that you come with and you have to air it eventually to have a meaningful relationship. Sharing something about yourself later that's as personal as spending time in a psych facility is one thing, but I do think it's a very legitimate concern to have literally the basis of your identity when you first meet someone be an actual lie. Like, not something you're holding on to and sharing later, but, like, a straight-up lie about where she works and what she does. And I think that is hard and ultimately not very healthy at all. Yeah. Well, and, and on that note, too, unlike, you know, Pete and Micah, like, Micah had her previous jobs. Pete is always wearing... Uh, sweatshirts from his college like they have had lives outside of the warehouse and Claudia has not and that's I think her big struggle is that there is not a lot of material beyond this job for her because this is all she ever like she spent all of that time going after Joshua and now she doesn't like you know know where to be and like her family is also Pete and Micah but Back to the artifact. They're about to put together the pieces of who this guy is and how his zoetrope might have affected things. But then the Mara's attack. <laughs> I read that as an avatar situation. It, everything changed. The Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> um, so I love as the ones scuttling up, Claudia does a great kick and then... Fargo's like, nice, like, it's it's an impressive, like, moment. And then they're like, oh, maybe that's not so bad. And it spits fire. And not just, like, a little fire. Like, this is a definite danger to them. And throws a net. Oh, I missed the net. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's all out. It's like, oh, you, you think you can take me? You can't take me. Um, yes. So they go running. And from there, we go out on the classic shoop, shoop, shoop box. Woo! <laughs> um, anyway, so now we come back for Act Four, and we are at the gas station with Leo and his gun, and our agents and Hugo. He says he's called the cops. They're on the way, and he knows they kidnapped someone. And he says probably this guy, and points his gun at Hugo. 
And they immediately put together that Hugo One accessed the internet, which did not exist when Hugo One was first programmed or uploaded, and sent out a message to prevent them from bringing Hugo back. While this is going on, Hugo gets a soda, while Micah calmly tells Leo that she will be showing him her badge. He says it looks real, but ultimately doesn't buy it because they're Secret Service agents and they're supposed to protect the president, but he's nowhere around. Which, I love that this excuse that worked pretty well in the first season of just, you know, don't ask questions, we're, we're Secret Service, it's falling apart more and more every time they have to use it, which I love. And I love the way he says it, like, yeah, not as dumb as you thought, huh? Like, just really cracks me up that uh, this inside joke from the show has now, like, come to haunt them in this way. Yes, I love it so much. And I love how hyped Leo is. <laughs> He's like, this is my moment. I'm going to be in all the newspapers. I found them. I know. So Pete sees Hugo with the soda that he just got from a vending machine <laughs> and realizes that... Hugo definitely has the ability to make soda explode because that's what Artie said earlier. So he starts trying to give verbal cues about this to alert Micah, but she just thinks he's weird and ignores him. But ultimately, he does get Hugo to toss the soda at Leo. And it, it would it's the kind of thing that would be a funny joke if it was just in your life, but it wasn't the explosive content <laughs> that... Pete was hoping for. It just sort of fizzes wimpily. It's really perfect. It confuses Leo so much that he's like, what? And when he goes to, like, bend down, Micah just kicks him in the face. And really, like, the plan worked. It just, Pete is, is kind of mumbling off about how, like, well, he was just inconveniencing people as a joke. Like, he wasn't actually creating bombs out of soda. Which definitely fits better, which I think is really funny. Yeah. A couple of things real quick. When Micah takes Leo out, Hugo makes a Billy Jack reference, which I did not understand. But it is a reference to a 1971 action film, so I'll put more information about that in the show notes. I do want to say that Micah does get her badge back. I see her pick it up, which is, for me, as a film continuity person, I very much appreciate. And then we go to the warehouse computer room. Where things are looking cold. And Artie has found Hugo One, has made him appear and is startled by him. And he grabs those old board game boxes, particularly Battleship, and is like, let's play a game. Like, I know you're going to kill us, but let's play a game. Like, it's really good kind of smart talking because Hugo One is like, I'm not going to let you, uh, what's the word? Distract me? Thank you. That's the word I needed. I'm not going to let you distract me. I know what you're doing. Um, but Artie is very persuasive. He does say, I know you can't resist playing a game, any game, which does show his knowledge of Hugo. Yes, and I think what we see Artie beginning to do and then really do when we bounce back to this scene is that he is appealing to the part of Hugo that is actually in the AI. 
Yes. And, and he is investigating that as the very intelligent and observant agent that he is. Yes. And from there we go to the warehouse stacks with Claudia and Fargo as they flee from the Maras. They hide in a crate, but have to leave when the artifact inside of it wakes up, as Claudia calls it. And then they have an exchange, and I will relate it, and then I have a plea to a specific listener. Please! Yes! Fargo says, was that the original? And Claudia says, don't say his name. Trust me, it can get ugly. And so, please, Ben Rab, if you are listening to this episode, what was it? I need to know! Because <laughs> I don't know! So, please, Ben, your only hope. Um, so, anyway... My note that I actually wrote down with my hands was, the Maras surround them. What do? What do? <laughs> so I believe that translates to, Claudia and Fargo are surrounded by Maras and they don't know what to do. What do? What do? Our new t-shirts. <laughs> Fargo and Claudia are running from the Maras, they get back to back, and they're like, come on, we're the biggest tech nerds in the Dakotas, which, again, I think is really funny. I think situating this episode in the Dakotas is fun. <laughs> Having visited the Dakotas, uh, it's even funner. Um, so they are like, we're going to put our heads together. We're going to make our, you know, self-defense. And Fargo says, you still have that ring, he says, can this ring amplify energy that's not human energy? And she says, like what? And he says, this laser? And then she just says, marry me. And the reason why, because I was like, why is this so cool? Is that when he does it, it makes an actual lightsaber. And I think that's the nerd moment. And Fargo even gets the line, like, decades of practicing or, you know, whatever. It's not decades. <laughs> He's not that old. But, like, years. He said 20 years. Yeah. Did he say 20 years of practice? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, they put these artifacts or kind of not, well, the, the laser isn't an artifact. But they put these things together and this green light comes out. And, like, knockoff Star Wars music definitely plays. Like, <laughs> we get the heroic moment that they're going to fight off the Maras. And then I think this is really cool that Fargo has it first and, like, grabs uh, or stabs the, the Mara nearest to him. But then instead of being like, oh, I'm the big man, he just hands the lightsaber to Claudia, knowing that the one near her, she can stab and she can get. And they only have, like, four seconds. Yeah. It's awesome. It's like, wow, that was so exciting. And she turns around and kisses Fargo. But she stops herself. I like that she does that, though. She did it to Todd. Yeah. It's just she's just like I have I have too much emotion in my body, and so I it came out through my lips. Like that's the only thing. But it's also something I relate to heavily as a demisexual person because it doesn't seem like it's specifically related to the adrenaline of it. It's related to the being on the same wavelength as someone like you knew I needed these tech tools and then you arrived and it's like, yes, we both wanted to save the day but also play with lightsabers and that's so cool and I don't know how to express it. So I feel like that specifically for her activated a kind of attraction 
that she didn't understand. I will say in general, don't randomly go kissing coworkers. But no. I feel like Claudia is very young and very innocent in this, and she's just, you know, learning how to be a woman in the world, and it's all still new. Yes, and unfortunately, poor Fargo is very let down. He, She says, I was thinking of Todd, and I believe that. I believe, like you said, her response, and I relate because I'm a very, very physically affectionate person. It's like, I just want to express how I feel, and she's like, but I didn't mean it. Like, I'm not, you know, I, I want to date Todd. I'm not trying to date you. Uh, he was not thinking of Todd. <laughs> yeah, he's bummed. He's bummed. And he says, this is why Jedi turned to the dark side. But can I say, though, that when she says, no, I didn't, I didn't mean it, um, he does not argue with her. He doesn't say, like, well, you kissed me. You owe me. Or you, like, he doesn't get angry at her. There's so many toxic responses that a man in another show would have had. But he says, okay, like, I accept that you did not want that to go any further. And uh, he even, you know, he's bummed. But she's like, so we can be cool, right? Like, he's like, yeah. And I do think that we've talked about this on Twitter with some of our male followers, for sure. Yeah. That in a lot of sociocultural situations at least in the western world men aren't allowed to display emotions other than anger and so most things get translated into anger and so what a show like this does with Pete and with Artie and now with Fargo is they show someone feeling a nuanced emotion like being bummed Mm -hmm. and that's okay that's a way to channel your energy into something that's not aggressive and you can just feel it and then move forward yeah so uh back to pete and micah they have pulled up to the warehouse but they're locked out and pete just quickly you know spirals into the this is how the computers take over and how they get us and you know all of that he's really thought about this he said (laughs) pretty like he says a very specific trajectory of things he says step one of this apocalyptic doomsday scenario that he's envisioned is to kill pete and micah and then (laughs) immediately after that is step two unleash the nuclear arsenal so it's good to know that he has so much faith in himself and micah that he thinks they're the only thing in the way of that happening (laughs) i didn't even realize that was (laughs) yes and then the third step was next thing you know we're all in human breeding camps wearing fur bikinis he's got a whole storyline envisioned with some crazy twists and turns and i thought it was hilarious Normally, the goal in a TV show like this is make the stakes seem as high as possible. And this deflated the stakes in such a hilarious way. It's like, yes, we do need to make sure that everyone in the warehouse doesn't freeze to death. But at least we're not dealing with nuclear war because that's so far outside the realm of, like, what we were dealing with. Because sometimes the artifacts are like, oh, the world could end. That's something that could happen as a result of this artifact. Micah's just like, well, we're not we're not there yet. Let's just focus. And she just says, sometimes I think your brain is the artifact. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, a brain is sort of the artifact in this episode. So she's yeah. on point. <laughs> True. So... Back, oh good, back in the warehouse, Artie has been playing Battleship with Hugo One, 
and he is winning and Hugo one is like impossible. And Artie reveals that he cheated. And this is where I would point out a somewhat of like a Kirk Spock playing chess situation. It's like, well, the, the hyper rational one can't picture a world outside of the rules or the parameters or whatever. It's kind of similar to that. But what Artie is actually going for, which is way cooler and more specific to the writing of the episode, is that the real Hugo used to cheat at games and drove everybody crazy. But this artificial intelligence version did not, and in fact, could not conceptualize that cheating was uh, possible. So this has led Artie to figure out that the one half of the Hugo mind was, you know, creative, impulsive, whatever, and the other half is in the computer. It's not a really annoyingly oversimplified, like, left brain, right thing, which is sort of a myth anyways. It's like there are different facets to Hugo, and he has just genuinely been split in half, and that's pretty cool. Yes, and the other thing that's really important about the way that Artie played this is he did recognize going into this that whatever facet of Hugo he was dealing with, because he did suspect that there was a split of some kind based on his reaction earlier to the aisle he was found in, Artie did recognize at least that the part of Hugo that he was dealing with was the rational, logical facet. And so what he did by cheating at this game was allow Hugo 1 to collect that data, which would bolster Artie's argument later. Very smart and very cool. Hugo says Artie doesn't know him, but Artie counters that he does. He knows that Hugo likes to wear his hideous leisure suits, and Hugo's uh, hologram like looks kind of offended and pulls down his blazer. Uh, he says he knows Hugo had a fat orange cat, and he knows that Hugo loves games, but the, the part that loves games is in there, and the part that loves cheating isn't there. Um, so an optical toy isn't just isn't just a toy like uh, that. In the sense that we talk about children's toys now, it's also a kind of scientific instrument that people could have in their homes that would show them something about optical perception in the same way that you might have a telescope or a microscope in the home. Um, that's sort of, it's fun, it's recreational, but it's also um, telling you something, teaching you something about science. Artie continues and asks, what happened? And Hugo One says that the regents told him to discontinue his project, but he didn't because he thought his work was too valuable to science. And then he made an error by transferring his brainwaves instead of copying his brainwaves uh, into the system. So Hugo's brain didn't burn out, it's actually in the computer. Then, using the data he collected, he says, Hugo, you can't run the warehouse with half a brain. I was able to trick you with a child's board game. And that data is very important and allows Artie to really appeal to reason. From there, we go outside the warehouse. Yes, we go outside the warehouse where the parking meter shoots lasers at Pete and Micah. Um, so they are thinking or hoping that Artie can convince Hugo 1 to let them in, but he still needs a little more encouragement from Artie. 
They hide behind an SUV while the eye shoots lasers at them. Um, before they hide behind the SUV, Micah starts to give a direction, then freaks out and gives up in, like, a really funny, whiny voice. She goes, I really think that we should, I don't know, and then just, like, jumps behind a car, which I thought was really funny. Um, and from there we go out on a box and come back for Act 5. And Hugo 1 acknowledges to Artie that his argument has merit, but he says he doesn't want to be reconstructed as a human, but he would like for the two pieces of Hugo to be reassembled in the computer. And this is very troubling. I just think as a humanist uh, in, in the world, it's scary to us. But Hugo 1 is like, then Hugo Miller can become his life's work. And we're like, oh gosh, how do we feel about this? I feel like it's an interesting dilemma. And I do want to note that at this point, Fargo and Claudia have entered and given the zoetrope to Artie. So they have the ability, they have at least part of the team together. I think it's interesting because most of the time in science fiction and fantasy, when someone faces this kind of decision, it's a third party trying to make that decision for someone else. Whereas this is weirdly a character consenting to this happening, but it's not the full character. It's like an altered state of mind. Yes, well, and that's what, what we were talking about is it's the rational side of the, the entity's mind. So he's like, of course, rationally speaking, you will die relatively soon in the grand scope of history, or you'll live seemingly forever in a computer. And yet it's like, well, the side of Hugo that like, you know, likes carousels and ice cream is not in there. Like the more, the more stereotypically emotional side, if we're, if we're breaking it down on the more boring binary levels, which I think the show didn't do, but it's a weird philosophical dilemma. And it's also especially interesting that I believe Artie would never, just as a Luddite, Artie would never want someone to live inside a computer but Artie is going to go along with it because he secretly has a plan to subvert it, which is also like... Yes, and I love that from there we cut to outside the warehouse where Pete, Micah, and Hugo are still hiding behind the SUV, and we go from this really serious version of Hugo that's like contemplating this big philosophical dilemma to Hugo making the adorable laser noise, which I wrote as... Pachoom! Because I've <laughs> never heard a laser make that noise before. Like, I've never heard it, like, said like that. And I just thought it was really cute and funny. And Micah and Pete are behind the SUV. And Micah and Pete are talking about, like, the the Tesla isn't fully charged. Like, we're only going to have, like, one shot at this eye that's going to try to attack us. And so I love that Micah's like, well, I'm the better shot, so I should take it. He says, bull. But, like, she's definitely the better shot. Oh, absolutely. But they make these screwed up, like, excessive frown faces and just raise their fists and prepare for another round of rock, paper, scissors. It's perfect. And so when they go for the rock, paper, scissors, Pete, being Pete, takes the moment, steals the Tesla, and, like, the hero he always tries to be is, like, ah, he's ready to go in, but... The eye? I always called it the head, and that was going to sound weird. <laughs> um, but the eye is gone, 
and the door creaks open and they're gonna be allowed in Pete's like, ah, you should go first, Hugo. <laughs> and Micah yells at him. Micah smacks him, and she is correct. I don't think Pete is serious. Oh, yeah, but he's not. It's pretty funny that they're like, oh, that's that's not a bad sign at all. Like, now <laughs> the evil computer is inviting us in. Yes, it's like, you don't want it to be shooting lasers at you, but you are wary of the sudden kindness, because they don't know what's going on and what deals are being struck inside. Um, in the computer room, Micah and Pete are in there, and that's where we meet them. And Micah says that Artie can't go through with this plan to merge them in the computer. And Artie subtly hints that he knows he can't do this, and he's found a way around it. Pete's not picking up on the hints and tries to lead Hugo away because he's not really dialed in to Artie right now. He's Mm -hmm. more involved in protecting Hugo which, you know, good well, for him. And it makes sense because Pete has spent the day with this very sweet and kind older gentleman. And now he doesn't even know, like, the Mara pops up and he's like, what the heck is that? And, like, the other stuff pops up. He's like, I don't know what any of this is. And all of a sudden you're telling me that we're going to destroy this sweet man's life. Um, it's completely in Pete's character and it makes sense with the storytelling of like the very limited perspective he has on what's been happening in the warehouse. And Micah also doesn't know what's going on. She she knows there's an artificial intelligence and then Hugo one pops up and she goes, wait, that's, and Artie just goes, I'll explain later. Yes. And, uh, so as they are ready to begin the process, the Hugo one and his Mara flying monkeys, are ready to stop Pete from stopping them. And so the Mara comes after Pete, and it's so funny how no one helps. Um, (laughs) Like, Pete's like, what could this do? And it's like, you know, it could be flames, it could be nets, it could be, oh, look, spinning blades. (laughs) And so he's a strong, burly man. He is on the ground, but holding it back from injuring him. And he's like, that's fine, that's fine, leave me here. And they're like, yeah, we're leaving you there because we have to finish this process. And we (laughs) trust that you can hold this off for long enough. And then he's just making these these great jokes like, yeah, I already shaved once today. Yes. Oh, man. Artie reassures Hugo One that they will continue as agreed with the situation. And they begin the transfer process by spinning the zoetrope. The transfer overwhelms the system and causes the lights to go out again, and Claudia realizes that Artie has made it so that she can get into the system from her laptop. Artie realizes that the cat pick that Pete and Micah have shown him from the sanatorium that Hugo has drawn means that the cat's name is the password to override the system. Slight (laughs) spoiler alert to things we learn about Artie in the future, but he does have the no we've learned this about him he has background as a code breaker it's a little disappointing that his guess for the password of the orange cat is orangey (laughs) you can do better but pete realizes that the cat's name is albert because if you recall back in the gas station the orange cat planter thing caused hugo to say albert grows things Yes, and in fairness to the code breaker, <laughs> it 
is within Hugo's character, his sort of whimsy that like his his code is just his cat's name. And of course the cat's name is Albert. Like I'm not even just saying this because you are my best friend, but like pets with old man names are my favorite. And yes. like, having a cat, an orange cat named Albert is just perfect. Pete also, this goes to something you said in a previous episode, Jillian, is literally holding back this spider from uh, zooming off his face uh, with his spinning blades, but is still tuned in. He's still listening. He's like, am I needed? What are they doing? Like, I don't think I can help because this is clearly a technology issue, but Pete knows and is alert and uh, is like, yes, Albert, it's Albert. Like, it happens really fast and it's like a quick climax, but it all makes sense. It's like, we've been getting these clues. He said, here's the code when he handed the picture of a drawing of a cat. Like that's, of course, the code is actually the cat. And like, now you owe him a bicycle. Yes, it's so good. And I love that. And they use the code, override the process, spin the zoetrope in the opposite direction, which reverses the process and puts Hugo 1 back into Hugo's body. From there, we are out, no outro card, and then we come back for the sixth and final act. And is this where he says, what are you all doing in my office? Yes! Oh no, it's, it's adorable, but like, I got really nervous that he was going to remember nothing. But then they kind of guide him along and they're like, do you remember? Do you remember? And he he reassembles those two halves of his brain in in a, you know, kind of thought process. He's like, oh, oh, right. Oh, oh, no. Um, yeah. And then he touches like his old man neck and he's oh. like, oh, no. See, that's <laughs> the most frustrating and scary part to me is like you are suddenly physically a different person from who you remember. That's pretty scary. And then they're like, it's OK. We'll get you some ice cream. <laughs> And he goes, I can't. I'm lactose intolerant. Uh. And then the faces they make, too, they're like, oh, you're in for a surprise later. <laughs> oh, no. It's. I think it's a good joke. Like, it's an I think so, easy sure. joke, but it's very funny. I think it's super funny. Back in the warehouse, Pete and Micah reshelf the zoetrope. And Micah and Pete have a very honest conversation. Micah expresses a concern and says that she's wondering what the future holds because she doesn't want to end up like some of the less fortunate prior agents. She doesn't want this life of loss that she's seen in other warehouse agents. And Pete responds with just the best, most honest thing he can say, which makes it better. He says, well, I'm usually within 10 feet of you, so whatever terrible thing happens to you will probably happen to me too. And I just wrote down, and that's it. That's the conversation. Because, you know, like, there is actually not a truth outside of what Micah said. Like, it's genuinely the case that this job can kill you and can have even worse fates than death for people who encounter these supernatural risks. And so it's like, your only comfort is that you have an amazing partner who is going to try their best to have your back and then if they don't you're probably both going out and it does point to a larger truth too Artie and mcpherson let this woman come between them and hugo was in a totally different space having this whole other drama with the regents and wanting to continue his work and Artie wasn't a part of that okay if you look at 
Jack and Rebecca, they had this situation where they couldn't tell each other how they felt and they would go off and do their own things. And Pete and Micah aren't really like any of them. They stick together. They work together. They're usually around each other. And I think that's part of the fear. They don't want to turn on each other or be separated from each other the way these other agents have been. And so Pete saying, you know, I'm usually within 10 feet of you is actually extremely comforting because whatever happens, it won't be leaving one of them without the other. Barring like a really long conversation, it's kind of the most assuring thing he can say. And then they sort of switch gears to less intense matters. And as they're walking away, Micah basically reveals how she's always winning at rock, paper, scissors and says, you know, when we play rock, paper, scissors, you don't always got to pick rock. Pete sort of protests and is like, I don't, but fine, next time I'll pick scissors. And she's like, well, now you see, you shouldn't have told me that. <laughs> Which is also funny because I feel like uh, that's the stereotypical like little boy choice to be like, well, rock is the best one. It's like, Pete, what are you thinking? <laughs> exactly. So Fargo, meanwhile, is finishing the actual update, which can finally go as planned. They've got that amazing steampunk keyboard that I love so much. You can buy them for like $400 on Etsy, and someday I will. And Fargo has also invited Hugo to come work in Eureka, where uh, obviously he will fit in very well with the tech geniuses and hopefully be able to continue having a life doing the kind of work he loves. Um, this leads Artie to also reassure him that if it doesn't work out, he can always have a place back at the warehouse. And Fargo, I don't think Fargo earnestly believes it's an invitation to him, but Fargo is like, wow, thank you. And he's like, no, not you, Fargo. Like Fargo's kind of being, you know, the way that Bella is when I'm trying to drink a glass of water. Like, let me butt in here. Let me come in I'm here. I'm part no, of this. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm part of this, right? Like, no, you're not. Why do you think you're part of this? Oh. I love Bella. <laughs> She's a bad baby. Um, also, I do want to note that Hugo asks, hey, did Billy Gates ever get his project off the ground? Nice in-episode continuity. I very much enjoyed that. And also, Hugo finally recognizes Artie. Oh, yeah! He's been calling him Agent Nielsen, um, and he's like, oh, actually, you can call me Arthur Artie. And he's like, Art... Artie! And it sort of comes together. Like, and that seems real to me. Like, when your brain has a lot of information shoved at it, it can't process it all at once. So even though, like, his brain is put put back together, he's still processing all of this data that's been spread over two brains for, like, 30 years. And it's been decades. And he also remembers, like, you always hated computers. And we're like, haha, continuity, Artie. Like, he's just... Been this way. Yes, and Artie says, I still do. Yes. And then Hugo suggests getting together with McPherson and them all having drinks. And Hugo's been through a lot. He's had to deal with a lot. So Artie just leaves it at there aren't as many of us left as there were in the old days, which I think is a kindness. I don't think Hugo needed that information. And I, I don't think it's really necessary because it does suggest that McPherson has passed away without the extra burden of like, and he was a bad guy and these horrible things happened because like McPherson's a complicated character and Artie still has complicated memories of McPherson too. 
And I, yeah, I thought it was really kind and gentle that Artie, Artie didn't lie, but he just said what needed to be said. And uh, Hugo understood that. It was good. Yes. And then Artie and Hugo hug and Fargo tries to get in on it. But Artie physically pushes him away, like holds his hand up and is like, no, this is not for you. Just like Kitty's face in a glass. <laughs> That's why I'm picturing it. It's like, oh, get your face out of here. Yes. And finally, from there, we go to the B&B. Oh, it's so short, and it's so, I like, not extremely heart-wrenching, but it, it does hit you where... It just made me angry. Like, it didn't make me sad in the way, like, when I first watched the Buffy Angel storyline, and that made me sad. I was just like, you jerk. Well, let's, let's, let's lay it out and see what we think, because... Okay. They're at the B&B, and Todd has come over because they needed to reschedule. He couldn't come for, or she couldn't see him. She had the quote-unquote emergency for lunch. And Claudia starts apologizing to him, and she says, like, her brain has been somewhere else. She's been dealing with these things. And, like, I think the other big thing is that she did have a question when she met Fargo. Like, would I be better off with a techie guy? Like, is this a bad date to even try dating this guy? And, like, she has come to realize that she does have a crush on Todd and she wants to see where things go and she wants to try to have, I'm interpreting, she wants to try to have a more normal relationship as much as that's possible, although it's not really. And she's, you know, apologizing and you see, like, her acting with her face is so good, her eyes are so earnest, and Todd stops her and says, like, I don't think it's a good idea for me to see you anymore. And then that's kind of it. That's all he can say. And he walks out and the episode is very abruptly over. And she's so upset. And I think what made me upset is that he was like, yeah, let's keep kissing. We have this very specific food plan for later that we're going to just be children and eat all this junk food. And it just made it seem like I had to reschedule for dinner, which she did show up for that dinner time and apologized for the situation. It just made it seem like you had to cancel on me and so I hate you and I'm breaking up with you. That's just sort of how it felt to me because we weren't privy to him having any knowledge of her internal conflict. No, but I got the pers personal interpretation that I got was that this has been happening off camera that like this isn't the first time and I don't know I don't think it's wrong of Todd I think he really likes her and wants someone who he can call and have them actually pick up the phone and like as a person who is very big on commitment I want that too and if someone wasn't wasn't available to me like I would see that being a problem in a relationship so I'm not mad at him I am very sad for her because the issue is not her. But turn the tables. If you have a love interest who is just never available when you call them and like often flakes out on your meetups and you don't know that they have a super secret government job, like you just think that they're unreliable and that maybe they're not that interested in you. I guess. I just didn't get that vibe because they were spending that time earlier kissing on the couch and... But she got up. She got up really quick. It was like they, they were making out for like 30 seconds and then she was like, oh, I have to go. Well, we started with them mid-makeout, though. 
So they were doing stuff for a while, and then also they were going to see each other later that day anyway. I don't know. I think that's very Demi of you. I think that he showed up, they started making out, and then she ran out. I think that's how it happened. It's totally in my brain. I don't think think there's any proof of any, you know, but... Yeah. I mean, how long, how many weeks has it been, too? Like, two? Well, in the time of air date, but... Like, we don't know for sure if that's the equivalent in the showtime passing. Yeah, I guess. I guess for me, the only thing is we saw her really push herself to expand and grow as a person every time she interacted with him. And I just didn't see much from him or see him take much of an interest in her life. But remember, he tried. He was like, where did you go to school? Like, what are you like? He tried. That's true. And because of issues that are not her fault, she couldn't say. And so I think him not knowing that she works at the warehouse and not knowing that she spent time in a psych facility and not knowing like this extremely personal stuff, which we can't expect any person to divulge too soon, but he doesn't have any of that. So all it seems like is that he's trying to get to know her and she's refusing and he's trying to spend time with her and she's not available. Like, I think he is actually really, really interested. He's trying to put in all this effort for her. And she always, in his mind, always doesn't reciprocate. I don't think that that's true, but I think it's how he sees their relationship. I think that's fair. And I think that I would be more inclined to be forgiving of him. And we do get more information later on why he is doing this. Yes, absolutely. But where I was, was she was in the middle of admitting that she was doing these things and that she wasn't paying that much attention. And that she realized that was wrong and she was like, listen, I know I've been flaky lately. I'm gonna be here more. I've been going through things in my head and I needed to get to a different place. And she had just realized that and was in the middle of verbalizing that to him and he just cut her off and didn't want to hear it, and then left. I think he was, he he had already decided that he was going to break up with her, and he didn't want her to go through the trauma of putting herself out there, because she's about to say, like, I really, really like you, Todd, I'm really into you, and he doesn't reciprocate, like, he doesn't reciprocate what she wants, so he is doing her a, a, a kindness by saying, like, I'm not going to make you continue to pour your heart out if I'm going to break up with you. Like, Which is fair, but if we go back to your earlier point of him saying, like, I want to break up because of these reasons, because you're flaky, because you cancel on me, because you don't seem to prioritize me, and she's in the middle of saying, those are things that I have realized I need to fix. I think that he he may be hearing that, but he doesn't believe that she's actually able to fix it. And like, I believe she, no, I don't know. I believe she could if she wasn't a warehouse agent, but I think that's the point. I think he has an inkling that like, she says she can fix this, but we know she can't. Like the warehouse is going to call her away. And like, I don't think he's wrong to have recognized like, you you want to fix it but you are you are not there's something extra outside of your own will at work here and you're not able to like do these fixes that you're trying to do 
I think it's funny that we read the situation so differently, but I also think it's funny that we're both totally wrong. Like, we're basing this on, like, what we see in this episode, and then what we get in the next time we see him totally proves that we're coming from a just different place entirely than what the truth is. Although, yeah, we'll have to ask who someone from this show. So there's a future episode coming up where we do learn more about Todd. However... I don't think that was planned from the beginning because I think the writing on it is not very tight. And I think this writing is very tight. And then what happens later is like, oh, that's a cool plot twist. But like, it doesn't strike me as believable at all. True. In my opinion. And I'm not insulting the show. What struck me as believable is that it's in Unavil. We'll get to it later. But we'll if that was gonna, that. if that was gonna happen, of <laughs> course, like Unavil's the best possible place for it to happen. Yes. But yeah, and we love you, Nolan Funk. You're hot. Yeah. I'm just so pro Claudia. I don't want anyone to hurt her. She deserves the best. Oh, I don't want anyone to hurt her either. I think I might hit her extra hard though because this was her first time getting to be a quote unquote real girl. You know, and so I think I think she came to it with a lot more emotional baggage than we're thinking he did. To be super clear, I I kind of agree with all of your points. I just like want to stand by my argument. But like, I think you're also right. Like, I think both of them have faults in what happened and it does super suck for both of them. And your points are really valid and important. And so are yours. I don't want to, I just, I just would fight for Claudia. <laughs> I just like having been in also the situation I date a lot, the situation where it's like, <laughs> I'm, I've, I've shown up at your house to break up with you and you're like begging me not to break up with you. Like, please let me do this. Cause I've made up my mind. And like, even if you tried to fix everything, like I am, I'm piecing out, I'm done trying in this relationship. Like, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a not so like victim blame because that's not what it is but like when you are the breaker upper it's also emotionally draining for you and like yeah. you, you know you have to do these difficult things yeah I agree but what a way to end the episode yes sorry delayed uh discussion of heavy themes heavy themes <laughs> But we do have a special announcement, Jillian, don't we? Oh, yes. Uh, For those of you who have been asking, the show notes for 108 Part 1 are up. And the show notes for 108 Part 2 will be up over the holidays. Yay! So thank you all. I know um, we, in Season 1, were really on top of our game. And it's just so challenging to make a second season without all the months of prep time we had for Season 1. So... Please bear with us. We are two human people who make no money and have lots of jobs. So we're doing better and uh, we really love this and love making it for you. So we appreciate your patience and support. We really do. We love you all. And thank you, agents. We'll see you next time. Bye.